Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray, God, that it would minister to our hearts. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open to receive, Lord. That we would be good soil. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and illuminate our hearts. Help us know, God, your word, we pray. When God moves, no one can stop his divine purposes. When God, when God does act, he chooses to partner with us, his people. See, God invites us to join him in his work. And he gives us the opportunity to obey him in what he asks of us. Today we come to one of the most important events in all of the book of Acts, in the whole New Testament for that matter. You see, God sovereignly shows how he invites Gentiles, non-Jews, all people to come to salvation through Jesus Christ. And he's going to use Peter the apostle in the process. Yet Peter is going to need to change how he thinks about God himself if he is going to be able to obey. Peter has never done anything like this before. It's going to go directly against his cultural sensibilities. Yet obeying God is more important than the human opinions and the things that we have learned in our lives. We have to be the kind of people who determine what we do, not based on what we think and believe, but instead on what God says and what he asks us to do. And, and, and Peter's going to be challenged today because what he has thought his whole life has now changed. And he's going to have to wrestle, wrestle through that. And so today our sermon is called God's Intervention and Man's Obedience. So the first thing we see is Cornelius' vision. In these first verses we see that God prepares Cornelius for his encounter with Peter so that Cornelius can hear the gospel message. In verses 1 and 2 now, the, the scene shifts from Joppa to Caesarea. The city of Caesarea is predominantly a Gentile city. It was built near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea by the client king Herod the Great. And Herod the Great named the city after the emperor Caesar Augustus. Caesarea was a Roman capital of the whole province of Judea, and it was where the Roman prefect lived. Now, this explains why Cornelius and his men are stationed there, because there would have been a heavier military presence in Caesarea. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a commander 
of a hundred men cohort, which would have been part of a larger one of 600 men. The name of his cohort was the Italian cohort, meaning that it's very likely that Cornelius and his men are from Italy and are stationed in Caesarea. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. And Luke mentions four positive characteristics about this Gentile. The first one is that he was a devout man. This first term is kind of like a summary that shows that Cornelius was trying with the light that he had to draw near to God. He wasn't interested in following the pantheon of the Greek gods. He didn't believe in polytheism. But he instead desired to dedicate his own life to the one true God, the God of Israel. He was monotheistic. Cornelius also feared God with all of his household. He's a Gentile sympathizer who is doing his best to practice Judaism. He would have attended the synagogue. He would have tried to follow the law to the best of his ability. He, he would have observed the Sabbath. And he also led his family to do the same. So this wasn't just something that he believed for himself, but it was also something that he wanted his family to believe also. Parents, I encourage us to learn with Cornelius' example. We're responsible for ensuring that our children that our household come to know and worship Jesus Christ as Savior. As long as our children are under our care, we have both the privilege and the responsibility of drawing them to Jesus Christ. One of the best ways that you can do that is by bringing them here so that they can learn the Word of God. Even better than that is that you would daily at a home Spend time with your children in the Word of God. Amen? Pastor Monica and her whole team do a phenomenal job here with the one hour that they have with your kids. But you have many more multiple hours every single day. So we encourage you as parents to pour into your children by sharing the Word of God with them. Luke also tells us that Cornelius is a generous man. He gave alms. Given his position, he would have been wealthy. And he used his wealth to be able to help meet the needs of the Jewish people in Caesarea. And finally, and most importantly, Luke tells us that Cornelius prayed continually to God. He's committed to seeking God. He desires to know the will of God. And this description of constant prayer, it shows that Cornelius desires to trust in God. And for a Gentile, this would have been extremely, extremely unique. The only thing that Cornelius is unwilling to do is to become a full convert to Judaism. He was not willing to be circumcised. That was usually 
the number one thing that prevented a Gentile from becoming a convert to Judaism. If you need me to explain what circumcision is, I'll do so after service, okay? In verses 3 and 4, Cornelius is praying during the ninth hour. It would have been 3 p.m. This was the main time of prayer for Jews because it coincided with the offering sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. Cornelius sees a vision of an angel that is coming towards him and that calls him by name. Cornelius! He's staring at the angel and he's terrified. Why? Because he's never seen an angel before. And, and if you read throughout the Bible, this is the most common reaction of people when they see angels. They're terrified. Yet Cornelius respectfully wants to know what the angel's intentions are. And so he says, what is it, Lord? He believes that this angel has a message for him. And the angel responds, your prayers and acts of generosity have ascended into heaven as a memorial before God. The angel uses Old Testament language about how God accepted the aroma from the burnt offerings that were done in the temple that brought pleasure to him, which were voluntary. So there were sacrifices in the, that you made at the temple that were a result of your sin. And, and you would bring an animal, and that animal was your substitute. And you would place your hand on the animal, the animal would be slaughtered, because it was taking your sin upon itself. Does that sound familiar? All of this foreshadows later on, Jesus Christ taking our sin. But there were also other, offer, off, other offerings that you could have done voluntarily. And the burnt offering was one of them. It was showing that you wanted to commit yourself and life to God, and that his aroma, you would hope that that smoke that would go up from that offering, that would enter heaven in God's presence, not literally, but figuratively, because God is watching what you're doing, and that it would bring joy and pleasure to him. The angel is saying the same thing now about Cornelius. Cornelius has voluntarily been seeking after God, and his prayers and his acts of kindness have reached God's presence. God has witnessed what this Gentile has done. And what does God do? He chooses to sovereignly act on behalf of Cornelius. We see God reaching out to this man who is sincerely seeking him. Amen? In verses 5 and 6, we see that the angel gives Cornelius instructions. Look at how specific the angel is. He tells him where to go, who to look for, and where to find them. Cornelius is to send men to the city of Joppa and to bring back with them Simon, who is also called Peter. They'll be able to find Peter at the home of Simon the Tanner, and his home is very close to the sea. The angel makes sure to distinguish between Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner 
so that they are sure to bring back the right guy. Okay? How does Cornelius respond? Well, we see in verses 7 and 8. The angel departs, and he immediately obeys without hesitation. God has done his part, and now Cornelius must do his. So what does he do? Cornelius calls two of his servants and a devout soldier. This devout soldier, it isn't speaking of the fact that he's been devout to Cornelius, but it's that this devout soldier is like Cornelius. He is also a God-fearer. He is also someone who has been who has been following the God of Israel. And it's very likely that Cornelius himself is the one who has led this devout soldier to this place. And then Cornelius takes these three men and then he explains to them everything that the angel had said in the vision, giving them all the details. Why is this important? Because it would have made it much easier when they arrived in Joppa and when they're explaining what Cornelius' vision was to try to convince Peter to come with them. Why is God doing this? Despite Cornelius' sincere devotion, he is not saved. He hasn't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. He needs to understand that he is a sinner who Jesus Christ has come to give his life for so that he could be forgiven. You see, God wants to be able to save this man and his family. And so we find that God is finding a preacher for Cornelius. God intervenes in Cornelius' life because he wants him to hear about Jesus Christ through the preaching of Peter. God is doing this. God, according to his sovereign will, is preparing this encounter. God is reaching out to this Gentile because God wants to work in his life. And God does the same today. God is working and preparing and, 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 and changing and molding people's lives already who do not know him. How many of you guys know our brother Andrew that is sitting there in that salmon-colored shirt taking notes? Raise up your hand, Andrew. He came to this church by mistake. Mistake. Because God was already working in his heart. God was already reaching him and speaking to him. And so he showed up here one day. He's like, this is a theater. And then we spoke to him. And he's been here with his family ever since. Why? Because God was sovereignly working to save him and his family. And then in verses 9 to 16, we see Peter's vision. Now we see God preparing Peter to encounter Cornelius. 
so that Peter is ready to go and to share Jesus Christ. And so in verses 9 and 10, it's now the next day. And the men are traveling from Caesarea to Joppa to find Peter. You can see the map. Do I got a map? I got a map somewhere there. Joppa is about 50 kilometers south of Caesarea. And it's likely that these men are traveling by horse. That they want to arrive quickly. And the text tells us that, that Peter is hungry. And he asks the hosts to make and prepare a meal for him. And so while he's preparing for a meal, he decides to go and pray at the rooftop of the house. It's the sixth hour. It, it, it was noontime. This wasn't a specific prayer time for Jews, but Peter is just taking advantage of the fact that the meal is being prepared to pray. As he begins praying, the text says that he falls into a trance. This just is another way of Luke telling us that Peter has a vision. So in verses 11 and 12, Peter sees a large sheet descending from heaven from the presence of God to earth. Are you guys with me? This linen sheet, it's being stretched out from the four corners. And on that sheet, there are three categories of animals. There are first animals. This would include all animals of four legs. Then reptiles. And then birds of the air. All of these animals are mixed together. Both clean animals and unclean animals. We're going to understand more why the clean and unclean is important soon. But he sees this. And then God gives him a command. God says, as Peter is witnessing this in verses 13 to 15, he hears a voice from heaven that says to him, to rise up, get up. And then he calls him by name, Peter, kill. In other words, slaughter the animal of your choice and eat. Prepare it for food for yourself. God is commanding Peter to eat from the sheet. Peter is shocked. God had made it so clear in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 11, which animals were considered clean to be able to eat and which animals were considered unclean and that you couldn't eat. Even the clean animals that you could eat, they had to be slaughtered and prepared according to a certain ritual. And now on the sheet, there are clean animals next to unclean animals, which would have made the clean animals unclean. Are you guys with me? <laughs> and God is saying to Peter, 
hey, pick your choice. Eat whatever you want. It's the Mandarin. Go. It's a buffet. Literally. Peter refuses. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter has been a devout Jew his whole life, and he has strictly followed all of the Old Testament dietary requirements of the law. He's never eaten, nor has he ever touched, for that matter, anything that was common or unclean. He's only eaten kosher food. How many of you guys have heard of the word kosher? So the word kosher comes from the Old Testament, and it means pure. It was a word that Jews used to talk about the foods that they could prepare and eat. Peter goes as far as using a double double negative to show his commitment to the Old Testament law. Look what he says. He says, no, never. He's being emphatic in his response. He he double downs and reinforces. God, I know your word. (laughs) I'm not going to do what you say not to do. And now you're asking me to do something you're that you told me not to do, but now you're telling me to do it. So which is it, Lord? Right? You can imagine if you're a child and if your parents confuse you like this, they leave you in a conundrum. Right? Well, my mom and dad asked me to do it, but then they told me not to do it, and now they're asking me to do it. I don't know what to do. This is where Peter finds himself. He's been obedient to God, and now God is asking him to kill and eat whatever he wants. You see, there is no way that Peter can violate his conscience and do what even God is asking. (laughs) So God speaks to him a second time. And he says, What God has made clean, do not call common. So God makes now this pronouncement. He, He declares it to Peter saying, Now all of these animals are common and they are clean to eat. That's what God is saying to Peter. And God is the one that is speaking, which means Peter needs to obey. Like Peter needs to believe and now do what God is asking him to do. Why? Because this is the beginning of a new era. Christ has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is now ruling and reigning in the lives of people. But it's not just for the Jewish people. It's for all of the people of the earth. And and God doesn't come and say this to Peter because this is primarily about a new day where people can now eat whatever they want. But this is much more important than that where what God is trying to show here, it's not just about food restrictions. It's also about table fellowship. It's the people that you can be with and reach and share life with. That's what this is all about. Why is God doing this? Well, simply put, God uses Peter's physical hunger. You guys remember what he had told the hosts? Can you please prepare a meal for me? So God uses Peter's physical hunger as the basis for this vision to make a point. He's basically saying, Peter, you're hungry. 
and everything on the sheet. Whether a clean animal or an unclean animal, like I said before, now I have made clean. And you should. And you can eat. So in verse 16, God has to say it again. The text says that God says this three times. Now God is reinforcing with Peter this new truth. Because God is preparing him for what's coming next with Cornelius the Gentile. And so it's important that God reinforces this again and again. And then all of a sudden, that linen sheet with all of the animals that are now clean goes back into the heavens. Pay attention. Because this is the most important part of the sermon. Why is God doing all of this? Cornelius is a Gentile. He's unclean from a Jewish perspective. Just like the unclean animals on the sheet. You guys with me? Entering Cornelius' house, being in his presence, sharing a meal with him, would defile Peter according to the Old Testament law. You see, the word Gentile it was strictly used by Jewish people to talk about everyone who was not like them. It wasn't a common word that people used. It was strictly used by Jews who said, we're not like them. We are God's people. They aren't God's people. God's plan is for us, not for them. Are, are you with me? And so this is how they distinguished between we who are called by God and everybody else who is not called by God. And when God comes and sends his Savior, what is he going to do? He's going to rescue us from the Gentile world, rule over us and reign, and he will judge the Gentiles. Are you guys with me? We love having kids in here, and we love having kids who make noise. You know why? Because we're a family. So it doesn't bother me one bit. And I'm the one speaking, so it shouldn't bother you either. Amen? God's going to use Malcolm one day to be a preacher. He's just starting right now. So we're good with that. Where did this perspective come from? Well, in the Old Testament, God chooses Abraham. And when Abraham willingly offers his son Isaac as an offering to God, God intervenes. And God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Look at what he says. Pay attention. This is the most important part. In your, off in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because of Abraham's obedience to be willing to offer his son, God now makes a promise with Abraham saying, listen, from your descendants... From you shall come a nation, Abraham, and from that nation, all of the other nations of the earth will be blessed. We fast forward, and now we find that Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, is in slavery in Egypt. And God delivers them through Moses. And that when God delivers them, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Verses 6 to 8. Are you guys with me? Look at what God says to the nation of Israel. For you are a people 
holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord has set his love on you and chosen you. For actually, it's the opposite. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Who? Abraham. That the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chooses Israel because of his promise that he made with Abraham. And it's not because they're a large nation. It's not because they deserve it. It's actually the opposite. They are small. They are insignificant. And yet God chooses them to show his love and his faithfulness towards them. And now God wants to use Israel to reach the other nations, to be a people who obey him. And so how does God accomplish this? Well, he accomplishes this by requiring Israel to live separate from the other nations so that Israel will not be found following pagan gods or corrupting their lives to live like the other nations are. So God says, I am holy and be holy like I am holy. You guys with me? Remember, Israel is now traversing through the wilderness because they have just left Egypt. They have no rules or regulations, right? They've been slaves for over 400 years. So now God gives them boundaries to live within so that those boundaries that he gives them will cause them to be a light to the nations. So when the nations look at them, they can say, I see God at work in those people. Not because they're big, not because they're better, but because God is at work. To show his goodness and his greatness. To reveal his glory in them and through them. To cause the other nations to humble themselves, to repent, and to turn to the God of the Bible. And so, all of the Old Testament di dietary laws, which, prevent, which prevented table fellowship, so sitting down, eating with other people, they were meant to separate Israel from the pagan nations. And there were certain animals that were unclean. And Israel could only eat what was kosher. So this meant that God was showing how holy he was by how his people were to walk in holiness and with obedience with God. Does this make sense? So the way that the people of Israel lived and the way that the people of Israel worshipped God was meant to testify to the other nations of who God was. Who's supposed to do that today? Same calling. Us. We're going to see that. Yet, Israel constantly disobeyed God and sinned. They desired to follow the pagan gods of the nations, and they lived corrupt lives. Instead of Israel humbly seeing itself as a servant of God that was meant to reach the nations, they felt hatred towards those nations. Instead of their hearts being filled with compassion, they sh showed hostility to the Gentile world. Why? Because it was the Gentile world which often oppressed them and had power over them.
we see this reality played out in the book of Jonah. Jonah the prophet, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because it's pagan, Gentile nation, wanting nothing to do with God. The city of Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire, and it was be- which was ruling at the time. And it was extremely violent towards its enemies. Just listen. They crushed people under statues. They fed human remains to their animals. And they removed the tongues of people who lied. You can probably think why Jonah didn't want to go. He had his reasons. Yet God sends Jonah to evangelize his enemies. These pagan Gentiles, they need to hear of God. Yet he refuses. And here's a part that you guys need to understand. God will always accomplish his purposes. My brothers and sisters and friends, you need to understand there is nothing that you and I, that the enemy, the government, can do to stop, to thwart, to weaken the plans of God. God is sovereign and he is always in control all the time in every circumstance, always. And so God needs to get Jonah's attention. So what does he do? He provides a large fish that swallows him to give Jonah some time to reflect upon the difference between God's sovereign plan and Jonah's desires. Because when God says something, I just want you to know, you better do it. (laughs) I grew up in a Portuguese home. And so we had a saying, you can do it well, or you can do it the hard way. You choose. And that typically meant that the first time you were asked, it's probably a good time to go and do it. But if we insist, there would be consequences. And with God, it's very much the same. When God speaks, we must obey. And so after a few days of reflection, in a probably a very extremely smelly environment, Jonah obeys. And he goes to Nineveh, And he preaches to the 120,000 inhabitants. And he preaches for them to repent and to turn to God. And they do. Praise God. But Jonah, (laughs) he's devastated. He would have preferred that God had killed all of the people of Nineveh. Why? Because they're Gentiles. God, why would you want to save them? Why would you make me go out of my way into the midst of my enemies? Do you know what they could have done to me? By the time we get to the New Testament, Jews hate Gentiles because they're unclean and they want nothing to do with God. This hatred towards Gentiles, it's ingrained in the Jewish culture. We're God's people and everyone else isn't. They had very much this mentality of us versus them. Yet Israel needs a savior 
just as much as the rest of the world does because Israel is also a sinner. The people are also sinners. And so God provides by sending Jesus Christ. Yet Peter, he still has these deep-seated cultural beliefs that Gentiles are unclean and that they're wicked people who deserve God's judgment. And now this is somehow preventing him from wanting to cross this cultural barrier. He doesn't want to go against his conscience. Especially with what he has believed his whole life. God is now showing Peter that what used to separate Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament now no longer separates them. Whatever might have prevented Peter from going to Cornelius' house and making him unclean as a Gentile has now been torn down by God. God has made Gentiles clean and he's offering them salvation. Peter can go and be in Cornelius' house, share everything with him, a meal, fellowship, and most importantly, the truth of Jesus Christ. This is actually the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Peter is now literally going to the ends of the earth. He is literally crossing from one culture, to another completely different culture that he is unfamiliar with and uncomfortable with. But we see God's plan of salvation for all people to come to know him. God is reconciling sinners to himself through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But not only, God is also reconciling people to one another. He's bringing together Jews and Gentiles so that now he can make a new people. Who? The church. All of us, regardless of our upbringing, cultural background, ethnicity, by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, now we are saved and we are his people. Have you looked around the room? There are very different people here. We have Nigerians, we have Jamaicans, we have South Asians, we have Spanish, we have Portuguese, we have Filipinos. Why? Ukrainians. Why? Because God saves who he wants when he wants. I wasn't sure whether I was going to do this, but I just want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And just bear with me, because this is too good not to share. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Years later, after this episode here, we hear Paul, the apostle, who was called to go to the Gentiles, talking about this new reality that Jesus Christ is helping Peter come to the realization of. Look at what Paul says about this reality. Therefore, remember that one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remembering that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of the promise, having no hope with, without God in the world. So, so, so Paul is speaking to a Gentile church. And he's saying, listen, before 
You came to salvation. You had no part of God. You had no part of God's people. You had no hope. But, in verse 13, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For in himself, for he himself is our peace, who he has made us both. Who is the both? Jew and Gentile. He has made us both what? One. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now there's no hostility between Jews and Gentiles. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Now there is meant to be peace between Jew and Gentile and those laws from the Old Testament that were requirements that were made to be able to help his people live holy and separated so that the nations will look at him now no longer are to meant to be fulfilled because now there are new laws in Christ through love that we should be using to serve one another. William, is the Old Testament law valid for today? Yes. It's God's word. But we are meant to see where in scripture that now there is the new covenant with which God is causing us to want to reach people. Are we as a church still meant to be holy? Are we meant to be light to the unbelievers so that they can see Christ Jesus in us just like Israel in the past? But now what does God say? That he has made a new man. That the wall that used to stand in the middle has now been torn down through the blood of Jesus Christ. And look, what does Jesus come to do? Verse 16. And might reconcile us both. Who's the both? Jew and Gentile. To God in one body through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, Gentiles who are far off, and peace to those who are not Jews. And this is what God is trying to help Peter understand. Finally, and everybody says, amen. Reflection and obedience. We've seen Cornelius' vision and how God is preparing Cornelius. We see, Paul, we see Peter's vision and how God is preparing Peter. And now we see Peter's reflection and obedience in verses 17 to 23. In verses 17 and 18, Peter is trying to understand what God has shown him and what God has said to him. The Bible says that he is what? Inwardly perplexed. This is an easy way. This is a very complicated way of saying something so simple. The guy is confused. He is so confused that he is trying to process. He doesn't tell anybody what he's seen and heard. He's trying to think through and to understand what is it that God is trying to show him. He's playing it out in his mind. What could God possibly be trying to say to him to change his behavior? I want you to know this clearly. It is always important as we read the Word of God that we take time to reflect on His truth. Don't just read and say, I did it, done. No, 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 no. But take time to reflect on God's Word. Why? Because we need to understand the truth of God's Word if we're ever going to apply it in our lives. Because if you don't understand it, you're never going to do it. 
So this isn't about accumulating biblical information so that we can say we know what God says and doesn't say. This is about transformation. It's God's word through his spirit that transforms our lives. And so as we read, the word is meant to seep into our hearts and the Holy Spirit is meant to come and convict us. And where our lives are not aligning with the truths of God's word, we need to be able to come and humble ourselves and say, God, I know what you're asking of me. And now I'm knowing what I need to do. And what I need to do is hard. But I need to do it. Because if not, there will never be implications of obedience, only knowledge. I don't care how much you know. I care more about how much you do. And when I mean do, I'm not talking about works. I'm talking about walking in obedience. But that can only happen if the word of God is filling us. And we take time to reflect on the word of God to understand the implications of what it means and what we need to do. This is the part where people typically fail. I know God's word, and then you look at their life, and you're like, well, why aren't you doing it? You talking to me? Yeah. Oh, but. But what? It's hard. It is. Let's start working towards it. Because the understanding that we have from God's word is meant to lead to obedience. Obedience must always follow understanding. So while Peter is thinking all of this through, the men that Cornelius has sent, they arrive in Joppa, and they're asking around